0: Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Whether you're celebrating Easter this weekend or simply enjoying a long weekend, I hope that you're taking the time to decompress from what has been, to put it mildly, a very eventful 2022. So grab some chocolate and take a load off for this week's show. The federal budget dropped last week, and of course it wouldn't be what she said if we didn't take a closer look at it to see how it impacts women. Anne Dector, Senior Director, Community Initiatives and Policy at the Canadian Women's Foundation, joins me to break down the budget through a feminist lens and shares the highs and lows of a budget that had a lot of ground to cover this year. If you're like most, you're giving a lot of consideration to your carbon footprint. Thankfully, there is a company that is literally looking at your footprint. Natalie Ashdown from Evico joins me to share how her company is looking to close the loop on unsustainable goods for good by creating plant-based products that lead with performance. We take a closer look at Evico Fates that is providing plant-based insoles for the shoe industry. I worry Anne Brody might be in a catatonic state soon with all the new movies and shows she's watching recently. There appears to be a bit of a boon in entertainment. This week, Anne brings the goods on All My Puny Sorrows in theaters now, Outer Range on Prime Video, The First Lady debuting this week on Crave, and starring incredible actresses Viola Davis, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Gillian Anderson, And a look at the female-centric, mind-bending, eight-part anthology series Roar on Apple TV Plus from executive producer Nicole Kidman. The divide between the haves and the have-nots plays out in our education system daily, and perhaps nowhere more than with the social networking and connections angles that play out in our schools. Dr. Prachi Servastava joins me to share why this happens and how we can take steps to ensure that we are closing the gap on inequities, not creating them. TikTok can bring small businesses explosive growth as Haley LaFontaine, owner of Oak and Willow, recently found out. A small business in Northern Ontario that makes and sells eco-friendly household products and cleaners Oak and Willow moved from a small business to a million dollar business seemingly overnight, and that hasn't happened without some hiccups to attend to. Haley joins me to share what the journey has been like for her. Finally, Frances Ann Solomon, a trailblazer in the film and television television industry, joins me to discuss her new film Hero, about Ulrich Cross, the new content creator database created to enhance the visibility of women in color in the film industry, and Black Market Releasing, which aims to connect BIPOC stories to the big screen. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 1059 The Region. Canadian Women's Foundation, Canada's national foundation working for gender equality, was watching for a bold feminist federal budget that would prioritize women and gender equality, and make transformative investments in an inclusive recovery for marginalized women and in key issues such as childcare, gender-based violence, and the care economy. Did we get that? Anne Dector, Senior Director, Community Initiatives and Policy at the Canadian Women's Foundation, joins me now to break it down. Welcome to What She Said, Anne. Oh, thank you very much. Great to be here. So I am sure you have been backwards and forwards through this budget. So just from a a big uh, position right now, did we get a feminist budget? Well, uh, to
1: some extent. I mean, I think the, the biggest things we have are continuations of commitments that have been made previously. Um in particular, child care, which is the one really big social infrastructure and transformative piece that that came out on gender issues uh, during the pandemic um, and it's also a major departure to have new you know social infrastructure. things have headed in the lo- different direction for a long time
0: overall, were you pleased with the budget, or do you think that they they fell short? Um, it's a budget that thinks
1: small, really. You can really feel that. Uh, they were not trying to do the bold gestures of the last few years where it was, this is an emergency. We will respond to all needs. Um, so it's smaller than we'd hoped. The investments are less than we hoped, but it continues to go in some some good directions and probably n- not enough. But it touches on a lot of the things that... Um, we see as necessary for transformative. I would say the big piece that's missing is is no discussion of the broader care economy and care work. Um, but childcare is is there. There's some on gender-based violence. There's some on systemic discrimination. Um, so you know the, the broader things they haven't let go of the themes, but they haven't moved forward in, in a way that at this point um, could be transformative. So you know, the build back better slogans like that. We'll, if we get a national childcare system, that will definitely build back better. Um, but we'd like to go a lot further.
0: Let's jump dive into the care economy a little bit. When it comes to that, what is it you would like to see in the budget to address the care economy and how we uh, talk about it in society even?
1: Right. So, you know, with the, with the pandemic, there was, I think, a uh, realization of how essential this kind of work was to the functioning of society. And it really hasn't been Uh, well valued. So, um, and we see that uh, wages are very low. It's the employment's very precarious. Uh, People might have to put together two or three different jobs in care, like working as personal support workers to make a living. Um, And there's little benefits. You saw the impacts of like uh, no sick leave, You know, no health benefits across that. So what we're looking for is for the federal government to step up like they have on child care and lead a national process, bring all the provinces and territories in and start looking at how those jobs are. So to to make that decent work, but also to look at the conditions of care for, for people in long term care. And on both sides of that equation, we're talking about women uh women are the vast majority of the workforce uh in some sectors of it like uh personal support work we're talking over 90% women largely black racialized and migrant women working there and on the other hand you know in long term care as the population gets older it's the the majority is women and it increases with age so it's really a, a gendered area And one of the phrases that people have been saying is the conditions of work are the conditions of care. So we want quality jobs in order to provide quality care. It's it's about quality all around.
0: I think, I mean, if we don't discuss housing, we're going to be missing a big chunk of this conversation. I mean, the pricing in the market is is, it's unreachable for most, uh, especially women. Uh, So. Did we do enough of the budget for that? What what needs to happen uh, to improve this?
1: So did we do enough? It's it's hard to know what enough is right in this particular moment. Um, you know, house prices have skyrocketed. But at the same time, we've seen through the pandemic, homelessness is, is massively increased. Um, so, you know, given the, the, the work that we do, we're really looking for um, a little more in terms of investments in in deeply affordable housing than has has been outlined in this budget, though you know we're totally aware that the government needed to do things you know across the the, the board and across the income levels. Um, so our focus is not so much on the home ownership um, instruments that are in here, but more on the uh, the measures to build affordable housing. And one of the concerns we have um, that we're seeking clarification on is that when the National Housing Strategy was announced in 2017, um, uh, the government said that 25% of that would be, the funding would be targeted to programs focused on women. And we just want to make sure that that keeps applying um, to the new things that are coming forward. So it was specifically announced in the expansion of the Rapid Housing Initiative, which was a very successful initiative uh, during the pandemic, to take things like motels uh, that you know weren't having um, high rates of use and turn them into housing by by making funding available for social agencies to purchase that and turn it into longer-term, use it immediately, and then with a commitment to do longer-term housing. And it was quick turnaround. It was used up within six months, I think, the original funding. Um, so that has it, but they've moved forward all of the funding in what's called the National Co-Investment Fund. I know I'm getting a little technical here, but it's a big, the biggest fund in the national housing strategy for building new housing that's supported by government and has uh, affordable housing, rental housing within it. So they've moved forward that money. Is the 25% target for women still going to apply? Is it going to apply to the new uh, co-op housing program? which is an interesting development. We haven't seen co-op housing expanded in this country in like 30 years. So, so there's some new stuff there. And there's a lot of instruments there. So we'll see what, what all this brings. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gender specialist uh, with an interest in housing, not a housing specialist. And even the housing specialists are saying, well, we don't, we don't really know. We don't think it's enough. We, you know We would like more um but we'll see because it t- there's room for take up by municipalities a couple of the big initiatives are about making it easier for municipalities to move on it there's one where the basically if municipalities or provincial governments want transit money um the federal government has committed to attaching that to them creating more opportunities to build affordable housing which pushes towards you know um provinces and municipalities looking at, do they have surplus land where they could partner with uh, local groups that want to build? Um, Can they give some kind of tax breaks? The whole of the, a lot of the national housing strategy has been based on that increase in cooperation and using federal dollars to leverage more participation, which is basically what they're doing across the board on on all sorts of things. But so, uh, yes, there's something there. Um, It's, you know, Continues to build on the strategy. It's a strong attempt to respond. Um, whether it covers everything or you know what the response will be is a wait and see. Obviously, as interest rates grow up, uh, things will shift to some extent, but just nobody knows how much.
0: Yeah, it's it's probably. I mean, it's outside of the budget planning, obviously. But I read an interesting article this morning that suggested that the government is looking at turning some of their offices into affordable housing because the shift to uh, remote work is likely to be permanent, so there is opportunity there to create some affordable housing uh, for people with, the, with those buildings that are largely now empty. Was there anything in the budget that made you, you know, I'm going to ask this actually two ways. One, was there anything that made you stand up and cheer, and was there anything that made you shake with rage that, that didn't happen? What, what really made you, fired you up, and what made you happy?
1: Well, I have to say we were really cheering last year. Um, there was a really kind of shock that this 30-year logjam on childcare had finally broken. And also to see that over the course of the year, the government had, had signed, the last one was signed March 31st. They signed agreements with all of the provinces and territories to move this forward. Childcare fees started dropping across the country uh, uh, immediately in some places. So so the big cheering was really last year with the $30 billion commitment. And the thing about this budget is they, they were quite clearly trying not to make huge commitments. Um, it's a really uncertain moment um, with inflation and interest rates are going to go up and unexpected advance of a war in Ukraine where we're going to be putting some money. So... Um, everything is small. So there wasn't really a stand-up and cheer, but maybe a, a, a sigh of relief kind of that the, the investments will continue in child care and that where they're putting the money is where it's needed, But um, in which is in um, money to build the infrastructure. So that you're expanding the system. You need somehow to get to actual more physical spaces for children to go to. So there's funding for that, but it's... Well, the estimates are that we need more than ten times that amount. <laughs> so, um, so it's that kind of thing, right? Um, where there is um, maybe that'll change a couple years down the road when the government feels more confident again about about spending. Um, but this budget, they were really, really felt that they are concerned about what um, what kind of critique they were going to get on that front, and so there's a lot of what. Uh, we would see as holding back, like a lot of kind of the right direction, but not enough funding. And that's kind of where we sit. So it's really, you know, it's a little bit gender on the back burner um, that, you know, those kind of comments, they could have gone further. It could have been bolder, but I think they really weren't in the mood for bold.
0: All right. Well, the Canadian Women's Foundation is always uh, you know, keeping us informed with the with these circumstances of things that are happening in our country and ways we can do better. I want people to be able to keep up with you, um to to stay educated, stay informed. So where can they find out more? Uh, well, we're we're always on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram.
1: It's not it's not my section I kind of feed in the content and and others um, take care of that but yeah huge present and constantly uh, communicating um, so and you can check out our website at canadianwomen.org
0: all right incredible thank you so much for joining me today Anne. thanks for the opportunity
2: More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on
3: 1059
4: The Region. So on me,
0: the fashion industry is currently responsible for more annual carbon emissions than all international flights and maritime shipping combined. If the industry maintains its course, an increase of 50% in greenhouse gas emissions is expected within a decade. That is why we all need to take a closer look at how we dress to impress. My next guest wants to be part of The Solution. With a background in engineering and global expertise in operations and finance, Natalie Ashdown brings a deep understanding and holistic approach to both the science and business of fashion through her company, EvaCo. Natalie joins me now to share more. Welcome to What She Said, Natalie.
5: Hi, Candice. Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: So this is a very, very cool business. So tell me about the evolution of it. Where did it start?
5: So it started a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a gap in the industry and, you know, a need to want to have materials that didn't have a lot of the bad stuff in it. But that also reduced the carbon footprint. Um, there's a lot that goes into materials, um, and into the production of materials. And I think people don't realize that that is where the problem lies essentially with carbon emissions is the actually producing the materials for everything we wear, sit on, for, you know, cars we drive in, like, um, you know, a lot goes into the emissions, exhaust fumes, or as you say, aviation, but how often do we think about our daily lives and what we use? the materials we use in our daily life.
0: And I think we don't think a lot about, you know, when we take an item out of our closet and discard it, we don't think about where that product goes or what will happen to it. And so, you know, like those microfibers and, you know, like disturbingly, we just found microplastics in people's blood. Like these are all things we need to be thinking about, right? So tell me, if you, you, your products are plant-based, Right.
5: So that's where it started. And um, the idea was to take plant-based materials and uh, convert it into different sorts of chemistries and adapt the different building blocks in these chemistries so that we could apply them uh, to a range of different materials um, by changing their properties.
0: So let's talk about one of them then, because one of them is called Fates and it's an insole. Um, And I think, you know, I have a small obsession with shoes, (laughs) so I find this product fascinating. So tell me about Fates.
5: Fates is a plant-based foam sort of material. It's like a polyurethane type foam material, and um, it can be used in a variety of different applications. We started in the footwear industry. For us, it was the most obvious industry to start in, and it had the widest outreach as well, um, you know, with a little bit of... Uh, adaptation we could get ourselves into the footwear industry and um, be part of the insole of the shoe then work to be part of the midsole and then work to be part of the outsole so it took a lot of innovation uh to get to where we are today and i'm really proud of what our scientists have done and achieved it's it's fantastic it took a lot of hard work uh often we were told we couldn't do it uh we took out a lot of the nasty stuff in it uh catalysts and um agents and um Solvents. And so we've not only focused on removing the carbon emissions associated with the material, but actually the stuff that's really bad for us that affects us, that affects the environment, that affects, you know, water systems. Um, so that was really important to us. And we also wanted to ensure that we were creating materials that were not only sustainable, but that were performance materials. Because often in our industry, uh, you know, the consumer doesn't choose a sustainable material because it doesn't perform as well as the status quo. So while they have altruistic intentions and good intentions, they still want something that's going to perform. And so for for us, that was our starting point. We wanted to make something that would perform well and be sustainable.
0: So where can we find, I mean, obviously we're not going to go out and just ask for fates. So where can we find the products that fates are in?
5: So we've done really well in the footwear industry. Currently, we're in brands uh, like Vans. Vans has just launched launched two new uh, shoes, both carrying our our our, um, state's material. And uh, Kodiak, um, you know, Timberland as well. They've also got our our material in there. So a lot of uh, brands are really interested in making efforts to look to companies, small companies like ours that are making a change.
0: Incredible. And what's next for you? What's on the horizon now then for Eva Co? There
5: is so much uh, that we can do. And we we have um, a lot of efforts focused on the plant-based leather alternative materials. Um, So we're heading in that direction. But there's just more that we can do in the footwear industry. So we're working every day to expand into different areas of the footwear industry. Uh, We can also go into... um, uh, Furniture, so that's another thing that we're focusing on, because a lot of materials we sit on. There's there's foam in that. So our cars are, you know, the interior of our cars are. It's basically polyurethane material. So that's where we're looking to go.
0: The opportunities are essentially endless. Then, uh, if you look out. So, okay, tell me then how people can find out more about you and where they can connect with you.
5: So, uh, Evoco, we have a website, EvocoLimited.com, and we have our product with websites as well fates.ca. so we have all our social media handlings on our website so go have a look and we would love to hear more and connect everyone
0: wonderful natalie thank you so much for joining me today thank you for having me Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody. And this is another full weekend, so let's just jump right into it.
6: What do we got first? The big opening here is All My Puny Sorrows, which is uh, made by Michael McGowan. A Canadian film starring Alison Pill and Sarah Gadon with uh, actually Mare Winningham in it. And just three superb actors. So uh, these it's a mother and two daughters. One of the daughters is uh, suicidal. Um, and the other one is doing her best to, to to stop her, to to be with her, to watch over her. Uh, it's a Mennonite family, so it's all it, it's all intermingled with their father's suicide a few years earlier. Um, and it all it seems like you know what was that? Was that a sort of a generational, like an, a subconscious suggestion or? Anyway, it follows them over the course of a few days. It's honestly so incredibly moving and dignified and literate. One of the lines in it is, uh, libraries are the bedrock of a civilized society. And so the girls, the sisters, speak to each other, often referring to works of literature. It's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So don't be put off by the subject matter.
0: I have to say, watching the trailer even was very moving. So I'm I'm, I'm positive the f- the film would be amazing. All right, tell me about Outer Range. Oh my goodness,
6: what a great <laughs> series! Oh, um, on Prime Video, Josh Brolin plays a, the patriarch of a ranch family that's been on the property for a hundred years um, in Wyoming. Uh, the next door neighbor is plotting to take his land. He wants a mile in from his fence line all around the property. Uh, so the families are at war and you get the feeling that this war has been going on for some time. Well, Brolin's out in the field one day and he notices the cows suddenly looking upward. And then they look back down and resume eating. Strange things keep occurring and he's running at night and he encounters a massive hole in the ground. Um, There've been a lot of missing people lately. And you wonder if it's connected with this hole and the hole seems to have some kind of weird power. He puts his hand into it and comes out and he's flooded with memories of his life. Um, so, you know, that's that's a sort of a central theme within this, this war between the families. And the sons of the next door neighbor are just vicious and they bully everyone. Brolin's son is out and they happen to be in the bar and they're partying. They inadvertently kill him. So they toss him down the hole. And then cows go missing. It's just the most astonishing thing. But that it's it sounds funny, like weird, but it is so intriguing and mystical. There's, It's just absolutely unique. So definitely catch that one.
0: It sounds a little bit like there's undertones of Yellowstone in there and then some, a little bit of E.T. mixed in for fun.
6: <laughs> Roland's daughter stars in Yellowstone. So <laughs> Eaton. <Eden.
0: laughs> All right. We don't we We're halfway through here. We got a lot to get to. Let's talk about First Lady.
6: Okay. So this is a, a series on Crave starting on Sunday about three presidential wa- wives, first ladies, uh, starring Michelle Pfeiffer um, as Betty Ford, Viola Davis as Michelle Obama, and Gillian Anderson as Eleanor Roosevelt. So it gives us vignettes of their lives. And what they struggled with to be themselves to to remain themselves betty ford had a drinking problem that was exacerbated by the pressures of of her office and eleanor roosevelt said it best you know she says this is not my job this is my circumstance and she went on to make incredible social improvements um, during her husband's uh, time in office and continued afterwards for years. She's a real hero. And then, of course, Michelle Obama. We see scenes of her at home with her family, uh, her original family at home with them, and learn a lot about behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, and also, there's all kinds of great background characters like the very evil Dick Cheney and uh, you know, Michelle Obama saying, They want me to be the black Martha Stewart and her rebellion. Um, So it's, it's pretty cool. I'm sure much of it is imagined. All of it is imagined. I'm certain of it, Um, but it's fun. (laughs) It's entertaining. All right. Um, Okay. We, we've only got time for one more really, but I want to talk about Roar because this seems so bizarre to me, this whole series yet intriguing. Yep. Yep. It's an eight parter. Produced by Nicole Kidman. She stars in one episode. The other stars get this Cynthia Aravo, Merritt Weaver, Alison Bree, Betty Gilbrun, Mira Syro, Fibel Stewart, and Kara Hayward. These are great actors. So it's out of, um, it, it's international. In, Mich- in Nicole's item, she plays uh, a woman who begins to, she's caring for her aging mother, played by Judy Davis, and she's having stressful moments in her family. She begins, for some reason, to start eating photographs of of family events, and then she's flooded with memories of how happy they used to be. So that's one of the episodes. Another one is Issa Rae, the very talented Issa Rae plays a black woman with a script that she's selling in Hollywood. And she suddenly becomes invisible and she hears what everybody's saying about her. And, uh, you know, she, she loses her power. It's, really astonishing kind of surreal like you hinted at
0: okay so you've got all of these plus you have anatomy of a scandal your thoughts on the kardashians who i know you just adore and you adore them right uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah. all of that is over on talk.com. and we'll
6: see you next week we'll see you next week candace <laughs>
2: Candace Sampson and What She Said, coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
0: Over the last few months, we've been having an ongoing discussion with Dr. Prachi Survastava about the state of education in Ontario. These topics and conversations, though, largely play out across the country and indeed in many places around the globe, especially with our focus today. We're taking a look at social networking and the connections angle and how that further establishes inequities in the education system and what we can do to prevent it from happening. Welcome back to the show, Prachi. Hi, Candice. Thanks for having me back on. I think a great place to start today would be... uh, around the rapid tests uh, and how that was poorly managed in Ontario. So maybe you can expand on that as a jumping off point. Um,
4: the rapid tests, of course, were a, a basic public health measure that would help to you know, um, increase education continuity. There's a major investigative report that was just released a couple of days ago here in the Toronto Star, that showed that uh, this very valuable resource was very, I would say, egregiously, implemented and, and actually distributed. Uh, what we saw was that um, there were only a few types of organizations that were eligible early on in August and September of 2020. These included private schools, um, but did not include public schools. And when when they looked at the data and private schools received the vast majority of these early tests, um, even you know ahead of daycares, paramedics, a host of services that we would consider to be essential. Now, Within that, there were also only uh, a small number of private schools that received a very large number of tests. So there is a double inequity there. The issue here is, of course, the fact that the public uh, school system, uh, as in Ontario, as in the vast majority of countries, caters for the large majority of students. In Ontario, it caters for ninety-four percent of all students that attend elementary and secondary schools. And when it was found out that you know these rapid tests would be available. Um, And that afterwards that it was being uh, implemented in such an inequitable way, there was quite a large amount of public outcry on social media and and also through uh, school trustees and parents groups and citizens saying that these rapid tests should be implemented very quickly within the public education system, within, you know, across all public schools. Um, But rather than doing that, the government, the provincial government actually revoked access to the test to all schools, including the private schools. But of course, the schools that already had them were able to keep them uh, and only reinstituted access to uh, schools in general in December of 20 of 2021, uh, just before the break. And again, very minimal numbers of tests were given to rapid uh, were, were given to public schools. Education workers and teachers were not even allowed to access those tests. Um, and in some instances, we found that, um, you know, schools where there was a box of five, uh, they were even, uh, you know, opening up the boxes and 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 actually, you know, giving each child two or three tests. So we weren't even given they weren't even given one one box per per child. This is a grave. Uh, if we can see in terms of the sheer numbers, uh this, there there were there were particular schools that got 10,000 12,000 tests back in August and September of 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 2021 there were and and they only had like 400 students so when you do the math you know you could test every child like almost every two weeks for the whole year with that supply whereas in 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 public schools that they weren't even made available
0: this sounds a lot like, you know, that it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, the rich are benefiting while, you know, those who are struggling, you know, can't can't, can't get a leg up. Um, and this plays out not just with rapid tests. It plays out in a variety of ways in our school systems. And I want to touch on one of them briefly uh, because I think this one is really crucial. And it's those parent councils. That happen, you know, and and when they happen in a wealthy community, those schools obviously can raise so much money. And we look at these schools where where parents are struggling to make ends meet, and clearly the same benefits will not happen. How does that affect uh, the the education system, particularly the public education system? Yeah,
4: that's a great example. And and again, we can go back. Again, we can go back to the rapid test scenario to to show that in in a, in a current context. The idea of parents' councils is, is a very good idea. It's, it's, it's actually, you know, meant to have parental engagement within, within a school so that you can share the governance and actually have some level of say and voice uh, from the community of the school um, that is directly affected by that particular um, institution. And so in a way, to have a parents' council is is, is a really good thing. Because you can, as parents, you know, um, organize and help in the governance and make sure that, you know, the concerns are brought forward and also engage upwards. You know, going through the governance system, also engage uh, upwards to the trustees and perhaps engage with the board and, you know, even even above that. So in theory, these are very good. And there are, of course, great examples where, you know, there have been... Uh, you know, a number of uh, initiatives that are facilitated by parent councils. But as you said, um, and as the whole literature shows that there is quite an inequity in terms of which kinds of parents can get involved um, because of their own social capital, we call it, you know, their own education, their own income levels, their own time availability, right? It actually requires quite a bit of time. Uh, their Their feeling of being welcomed within a school. Um, and also their feeling of understanding the school culture, there might be linguistic or, or other barriers. So we do see that even in terms of parental engagement, it's usually parents that are going to have the time and, and a little bit more social capital that that do that. And then across schools, you'll see that, you know, uh, uh, the different kinds of initiatives that are implemented sometimes in schools are are very inequitable again because of the the, the neighborhoods that schools are in. So if right. a school is in a more is is in a relatively better off neighborhood and we're not talking like super wealthy, but even if they're relatively better off neighborhood um, where there is a certain kind of a demographic makeup, uh, those councils tend to be uh, better engaged, can do a lot more volunteer efforts, can perhaps get in different kinds of, um, you know, different kinds of facilities for the schools. Now, in the case of the rapid test, going back to this, we saw that because the government did not actually implement a rapid testing program very, very, very well uh, in public schools, there were schools uh, within the public system whose parents organized through the council to actually implement their own rapid testing programs uh, by, by acquiring the test through other ways and also by, you know, pooling their resources, a, a whole host of things that we saw. Uh, Now, of course, that that is a a fundamental, you know, as a parent and and as somebody on a council, I can, you know, not not personally, but I can see how that would be uh, something that parents would want to do. But as a system, on a system wide level, when we know that the infections are actually affecting uh, schools in more marginalized uh, er areas or have more school infections, we can
0: see that at a systems level that that's not a very equitable response. So, OK, we only have a couple of minutes left then, and and this is such a big conversation. But if you could just, what are some solutions to this to make this a more equitable system? I mean, obviously, parents want to help their kids, but how do we make sure that everybody gets help? So
4: I think that's that. that's really the point. It isn't it isn't to point the the finger on parents. You know, the, the, the issue is bad governance uh, starts from the government from from the top up. Right. If you, if you have bad governance or from boards if they're not if they're not participating in particular issues in this case very much a government issue but where there are you know active school councils it perhaps would be a good idea to see partnerships you know to see uh, school councils partner with other schools in their neighborhood or in the or in their particular board where they know that you know in, in the same postcode sometimes depending on how big the postcode is you might have two or three very different kinds of schools, right? Because of the microcosm of, especially elementary schools, the microcosm of how they draw their catchments. So you might want to see, you know, partnerships in that way. But the bigger issue really would be to think of how to mobilize and take these kinds of initiatives up to the board level and really uh, to involve school trustees and take it as collective action. Uh, because, Because without that, you know, when when schools are so uh it, only focused on their own immediate school population it actually doesn't serve the community it doesn't serve the the wider uh catchment so that's where i would see you know i i would suggest that that's where we take things forward
0: i agree i mean i think i think also you know we have to as parents we have to understand that we're not just setting up a better society for our children. We have to set it up for everybody for it to work. So we have to think about uh, everybody and and, and, what, and how they're all benefiting from this as well. Uh, Dr. Suvasova, it's always a pleasure to, pleasure to have you here. You're back next month and you're back the next month. I love that we're keeping this conversation going. Uh, but in the meantime, you're always sharing great information. So where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Prachi,
4: P R A C H I S R I V A S. Most of my uh, media engagement, everything is done on Twitter. I would suggest for people go on there.
0: All right. Thanks so much. We'll see you again next month. Thanks, Candice. is a small business in Northern Ontario that makes and sells eco-friendly household products and cleaners. What began as a way to make their home safer for people and pets, Haley LaFontaine and her partner Griffin quickly found that friends and family were also loving their products and decided that it was time to share with the world. Except that TikTok fame really means the whole world. And after going viral there, they are now working around the clock to get their earth-friendly and affordable products out the door. Haley joins me now to discuss. Welcome to What She Said, Haley. Yeah, hi. I'm so happy to be here. I found you on TikTok, obviously. Tell me what it has meant for your business to go viral in that space.
7: So it has been like I have no other word to describe it other than just genuinely surreal. Overnight, we had a video that got over like 3 million views and that translated to a buttload of sales, like just very quickly. So as fast as we could, we had to put our website from just uh, on stock into pre-order because prior to that, our amount of orders was... um, It was manageable that we always had it like our shelves stocked. We could just send it out. Our processing time was next to nothing. But now we have thousands of orders to fulfill, which... It's especially difficult for a company like ours where we make every single product that we sell. Um, and with that, we don't want to sort of lose the integrity or the effectiveness of any of our products. And so our customer base has been really understanding of the process times and we have been very active through TikTok and Instagram, uh, just sort of showing the behind the scenes journey. Uh, when we went viral, we had to move very quickly to adjust our business. So we needed a larger workshop. So like two or three days after we went viral, we bought a new workshop. Um, We have high, we've doubled our staff since going viral. It has been like every single change very, very quickly. And for all of our new staff members, it has been super intense and very trial by fire. And all have, all of them have been Absolutely amazing! Like we have a really awesome team, so that it's it's been surreal.
0: So I imagine there is a downside to all this fame. You're likely not getting any sleep, uh, and you probably have to deal with some trolls, uh, you know, and negative comments as well on TikTok because I see that all the time. Is that right?
7: Oh, oh yeah. I actually saw another TikToker who similar story went viral on TikTok, and she described it and. This is the best way I've ever heard it described. It's like someone gives you a free Tesla, but there's dog poop in the back seat. So it's really great, but there are some really, really awful parts of it. And some of that have been um, sort of that pressure like internally of now my social media presence is what the business is relying on. It's almost me as a commodity. Um, there have been the people, you know, that are used to processing times like Amazon who have not been impressed with that. But honestly, for every one, one negative comment we've got, we've gotten a thousand that are just way, way more supportive than we ever could have imagined. Like our small business turning into this sort of like staple brand for people is amazing.
0: So tell me then, let's talk about the products because they really are, what is the star of this show? So is there a specific product that started this all?
7: Yeah, so our startup was also pretty strange. Uh, We began, we just had our one year anniversary and it was with our zero waste toilet cleaning pods. Basically, I had been making them for our family and then family and friends, and we had a couple extra jars of them. So we put them on our local Facebook buy and sell group. And in 24 hours, we had over 200 orders that week. We had stores contacting us, that they wanted to stock the product. So that beginning was also like, holy crap, like something's happening here. So we very quickly turned that into a business. Then we just exp- kept expanding products. But for this specific, specific sort of like viral thing that happened here with TikTok, it was our solid dish soap that went viral, actually. And so that that was amazing because it's my it's my personal favorite product to use in my own home. The only thing about it is that it is a cold process soap, meaning that You make it and then it takes a week to cure and we have like thousands and thousands of orders of them. Uh, So we've been, we've been making a lot of soap.
0: So what's next then? Do you have any new products in development?
7: Yeah. So there are a couple. Um, The next one will be a stain stick. We have a laundry collection with laundry pods, and then like these extra large full dryer balls. And the next thing we will do is be adding to that collection through a stain stick. And then um, I think just due to really popular request, I think we'll be moving into more beauty care. We have been getting so many requests for it. So I think that'll be in our next steps.
0: Well, I really want people to go over and watch your TikToks and get to know you and obviously order your products. I have to say it. it- it's crazy, but I just am absolutely obsessed watching you make the soap and put it in the molds. I don't know why it's so soothing, but I do love it. So where can people, where can people find you, order your products and obviously follow along with your great success?
7: Yeah. So our website is oakandwillow.store and then our TikTok and Instagram, all of those handles are oakwillow underscore eco-friendly. And we keep it very, very up to date. We post we post pretty constantly to show a good behind the scenes. Incredible.
0: Haley, thank you so much for joining me today.
7: Yeah, thank you so much.
2: More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
0: A trailblazer in the film and television industry, Frances Ann Solomon is an award-winning film and television director, curator, and businesswoman. Born in England of Trinidadian parents, she was raised and educated in the Caribbean and Canada before moving to Great Britain, where she built a successful career with the BBC as a TV drama producer and executive producer. Frances Ann joins me today to share details on her latest film, Hero, the raw and inspirational story inspired by the life and times of Ulrich Cross the Woman of Color Content Creator Database, and Black Market Releasing, which will begin serving the dynamic, untapped theatrical market for diverse voices. Welcome to the show, Francis anne It's a pleasure to have you here.
3: Thank you very much, Candice. Thanks for having me. So tell
0: me, what was the inspiration to make a movie about Ulrich Cross?
3: So the first thing to understand about Ulrich was that he was a friend of my family's. So he was Uncle Ulrich to me. And uh, it was my mother, actually, Anne-Marie Stewart, and her friend, Desmond Allen, who, um, you know, through working and being friends with Ulrich over a very long period of time, decided they thought that his life was worth making into a movie called Hero. And uh, being the filmmaker in the family, I came on board to do it. And so we began to fundraise for it. Um, and it was, it was an incredible experience because I haven't ever done anything or made a film. Um, That was that close to who, you know, to me, you know, because he came from the same social background. He, you know, is very similar um, historical background to where I came from. And so it was really like using my own experience and my own background as a palette to tell uh, a big story, you know, a big story that spans 70 years and three continents and so on.
0: That must have been very challenging because you have such a personal connection to the story. To separate yourself sometimes enough to make sure that you were telling the story correctly. Did you struggle with that a little bit?
3: Um, well, what I struggled with was finding a voice for the film. I do, and I really don't know how to explain that. Um, but yeah, I guess it was, it was, it was. You know, because his life spanned such an incredible period of history. Uh, it was necessary to, to tell that big story, but from a very personal point of view. And so what I struggled with was almost like, how do I tell the story of, of this big canvas from the point of view of this single man who I know very well? So that was the struggle. Yeah.
0: So tell me then, let's move from Hero then to the content creator database, because this is something very near and dear to your heart as well.
3: Well, as a woman of color in the film and television industry, I can attest that women of color are underrepresented or underemployed, I would say. For example, a a survey done by an organization called Women in View, even last year, showed um, that women... Black women and women of color in the industry, um, you know, really, even though there's like fifteen percent of the population essentially is non-white women um, females um, the in the in terms of employment, it's under one percent. What is that about and then and then the head of Telefilm, which is our national um, funding organization, said also in July she said that within the employment of the screen-based industries, gender parity had been uh, reached. In other words, 50% of the work was going to men and 50% of but women, you know, that parity was not reflected in terms of that most of the work was going to white women. And so, you know, um, there are systemic barriers to the integration of, of women like myself who are highly experienced and highly skilled into the industry. and, uh, and, and, and so one of the ways that we wanted to address that was by creating a database available to everybody, um, employers and so on, who could search for women of color to employ. And it, it has their, their work, their CVs and so on um, in order to to, to, to create, the, to raise the vis- visibility and deployability of um, talented women of color.
0: Okay, so that is still accepting applications. So we're going to link out to that when we share this on the show notes and the liner notes. And the last thing we wanted to just sort of touch on is black market releasing. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
3: Um, So black market releasing is our theatrical, Canadian theatrical distribution arm, the Canadian theatrical distribution arm of the Caribbean Tales Media Group, which is my company. There are many films made every year here in Canada that don't get distribution. Um, and we wanted to focus on films by creators of color, um, new immigrants, um, because quite often those films are not picked up by, you know, the big distributors, but they have an audience. They're wonderful films and they have an audience. You know, they, they're a huge, they're, I feel like in Canada, there's an untapped market for uh, diverse content. And so we wanted to to be that company that could pick up these films and, just, and, put, and show them in the cinemas. And our, our company, Caribbean Tales, has a long history of, of, um, of successfully um, screening films in cinemas through our festivals, through our, um, through our distribution arm. And so this was an opportunity for us to just focus on that and give um, wonderful uh, films a platform in the cinema landscape.
0: You are a force, uh, obviously. Uh, just these three topics that we were able to touch on in our brief interview are absolutely incredible. So I want people to be able to find Hero. I want them to learn more about the content creator database and Black market Releasing. So what? It, where's the best place to connect with you?
3: Well, the best thing to do is to Google the Caribbean Tables Media Group. Um, so Hero um their website is heroallreadcross.com. And then for the the Cinefam Women of Colors database, it's Cinefam.ca. And then for um for black market releasing, it's BlackMarketReleasing.ca.
0: Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Frances-Anne.
3: Thank you, Candace. I really appreciate it.
0: That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region.
2: Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.
1: I'm
0: Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever
1: you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.
7: What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Mary Ann Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover.